guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And, and happy birthday, Chris. Today is my birthday, Friday. It is my birthday. This is my birthday episode, which uh, is obviously we didn't even mention Christmas, but <laughs> the birth of, of the Lord and Savior. But we'll mention my birthday, which is <laughs> Are today. you implying that's more important? To me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Especially as I've gotten older and I don't get any presents for someone else's birthday anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so it's, well, it's all for the kids. Yeah. Anyway, so what's going on on today's episode? Yeah, so we have uh, Mr. Ramsey Potts in the studio. Yes, yeah, so he works for RM Sotheby's. And I remember seeing him way back in the day. Uh, well, I guess not way back in the day, but w- back in the day when I was at Car Week and I went to the Sotheby's auction. I walked up to the stand. I was like, hey, I take pictures for you guys. Can I get in? <laughs> and they're like, do you have an email that we sent you or anything? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Here, check it out. Like, okay, here you go. He gave me the thing. That's cool. And we walked in, and I kind of watched kind of the goings on, and I saw this guy in this blue sport coat and this okay. and this like a little tweed hat. And uh, he was out front kind of looking around and smiling. And um, and that, that I found out later on that that was, that was Mr. Potts. That was Ramsey working out there. Um, so we have him on the podcast today to talk a little bit about um, his life, how he got to be a specialist with RM Sotheby's. Right. But also, I really don't know anything about how that process works. Buying, selling, logistics, none of it. I don't know anything. Literally. I don't either. Okay, so I, I don't, don't even know what a specialist for RM Sotheby's does other than work on auctioning well, very high-end cars. We will find out. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about Worth? That's right. Our latest sponsor is Worth. So Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with industry-leading customer service. They've also just launched their world-class hand tool line to the U.S. market. And these are German-made tools with a lifetime warranty. And what do I always say about tools, Jake? Buy the best tools you can afford at the time because you'll have them forever. Yeah, you don't need to buy a bunch of crap that you have to replace over and over and over again. Right. You know, I was looking on my on my Instagram story and I had bought some tools like 10 years ago and they're nice. And I was using them the other day and I'm surprised that they still work and they still operate. But they're the it's the good stuff, just like right. Worth. And if you want to have tools or anything else that's going to be around forever, just... And good tools you can pass down. You can pass down. They last forever. Yes. So head over to worthusa.com to check out all of their products. Okay. So I've done plenty of work for Sotheby's. Okay. Um, The most recent thing I did was a purpled purpled a well purpled. it was purpled it was a pur- <laughs> it's a car that was painted purple it's been purpled it's like pickled but purpled <laughs> it just sits in a vat of purple paint <laughs> i like it yeah uh, it was a packard twin six which is i think a v12 is basically twin what that six okay and this that car makes sense. is enormous so what year would this thing have been packard mid mid 30s late 30s okay, i yeah. don't know but i think it was like a six or eight hundred thousand dollar car or something wow. like that and i didn't really know that by looking at it but it's whenever i see something like that i think of like cruella draville driving it with the big <laughs> headlights in the front that's the way that i see it and this thing was um they're massive yeah i was driving i believe it i was driving the wagon next to him to, or jess was driving and i was taking a few pictures of it in motion okay and even his seating position as i'm hanging out the window is above me wow they are just enormous cars and they're so incredibly heavy oh i bet which I found out when it didn't start anymore. <laughs> oh no! And I had which, and I had to like push it, and it was just absolutely brutal. And there's no power steering. 
Yeah. When it's off, obviously. Oh. So Jess is in there. She's got the steering wheel just in her hand. She's trying it. to like, I'm back there trying to push this thing. It must weigh like 6,000 pounds. And she's trying to turn the <laughs> yeah. steering wheel and the steering wheel won't move. And we're trying to just get the thing moved around. And it seems more often than not, when I shoot these cars or do auction stuff, something's always not working. Oh, geez. Because the cars don't drive. They just sit around. Oh. And I feel like these cars just sit around, they change hands, and they go to the next guy and sitting there that's my least favorite thing about the auction thing yeah but the cool thing is that most of the cars other than that are very well taken care of so it's kind of you know when they don't get driven they're very very nice so there's kind of i'd rather see them be driven obviously but there's kind of both ways to both of it and a lot of guys that work at the auctions i'm guessing well we'll talk to to ramsey and see what he thinks but i think a lot of the cars that are there don't necessarily get driven so we're going to find out what kind of cars uh go to the auction what kind of criteria does it take you know all that kind of thing and another thing with all these cars is the owners are they're always a little weird okay well, there's, there's like, like yeah, a little it's centric, eccentric right yeah there's well ex- eccentric that's what yeah, i was trying there's, to there's say there's a there's some eccentricity out there but they they always make me suffer as the photographer cuz okay. i always want to do the best job that i can and a lot of the guys are like just push it back out behind the shop and get some pictures would you <laughs> and i'm like look man my job is to present the car to the buyers. Yeah. Can we do XYZ? And they're like, eh, no. A lot of the time they do that. And I and I try to get across, hey, the photos are so important. This is the first thing people are going right. to see. And some guys are like, yeah, okay, I get it. Let's do it. And the thing is, is that I think it goes back to the cars don't always run. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I mean, that's kind of buyer beware there. So that's been my experience with it. I'm sure some of the more expensive cars are probably a little bit better. Well, and I'm I'm excited to talk to Ramsey about like if you're going to sit in one of these auctions, what do you know about the car coming on stage? Right. You know, do you get to see it run? Do you get to sit in it? Right. What is basically the criteria that you know? I want to know some of his advice for buying some of these cars too. Yeah, and, uh, that'd be interesting. And we'll see where things go. All right, we'll be right back with Mr. Potts in just a minute. Mr. Ramsey Potts, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate you being here. Chris, it really is an honor. Thank you very much for the invitation. You're doing a great job, and it's a privilege to be a part of your rapidly rising star, fellas. It really is. We appreciate that. that. (laughs) I really do appreciate that. You should uh, write all of our reviews on iTunes. That would be be, be perfect. Well done. So I told Jake a little bit earlier about when I first saw you and I didn't know who who you were, but I was at the Car Week in Monterey Probably okay. in this must have been 2017, I think, and I and I remember seeing you up there. I didn't know who you were, what you were doing, but you had a big smile on your face, and I'm like, that guy's having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you saw me at Monterey this year, next year, and the year after, Lord willing, I'll still be having a great time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's a pretty good. Uh, Pretty good description of what was going through my mind at that time. So I didn't know at that time, but you are an RM Sotheby's specialist. What what exactly is that? It's a great question, and that's one I get asked fairly often. And I'll, I'll use the art world, Chris, to give you a little bit of a better example. We're Sotheby's is a part of RM Sotheby's, obviously, and Sotheby's is a two hundred seventy five year old company. Uh, 
which originally got its start auctioning books, but they're probably more predominantly known today for art. And art is a great place to sort of give you the example of what it means to be a specialist. So within the art world, if you wanted to reach out to Sotheby's and had, you had some questions or you wanted to consign a certain piece of art, you would ask for a specialist. And the specialist you would get would be the one that pertains to your particular piece of art. So, for example, maybe, Jake, you have a piece of art from the Renaissance era. Um, I wish I you did. Piece, <laughs> I thought you well, were going to ask if, yeah, Jake, don't we all? if Jake had something that he's drawn lately. That <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, art comes in many forms, doesn't yeah. it? So uh, it's the eyes of the older. And one of you might have something from uh, the Dutch master so or a contemporary piece of art. And then within contemporary, there's a lot of divisions. So you would have a specialist who knows that particular genre. That They're not just art specialists, but they have sort of subspecialities. Well, within the world of auction specialists, I'm part of an amazing team of car specialists is sort of probably the best way to explain it, if that makes sense. And yes, within each of the specialists, uh, car specialists that are in Sotheby's, we have subspecialities, if I may, and it just keeps going. So what's your subspecialty? What, what do you, what's your claim to fame? Well, I... I <laughs> Full disclosure here, I am, I'm a car specialist and I consider myself the least special of all the car specialists because my colleagues are so, 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 so bright and talented. They, they know so much. But one of the fields that I focus on is post-war European sports and GT. So naturally, that probably has something to do with why I'm on, I'm on your podcast. Yeah, for sure. Me. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, Specialities post-war European doesn't mean that if you called me and said, I've got a 37 Packard, I can't do my homework and I can't learn about it and help you with it. But the beautiful thing is if I do get that call, I have colleagues and they have their specialities and I'll call them and I'll say, hey, Kenny or hey, Donnie or hey, Gord, I've got a Packard that I need to know a little bit more about, a pre-war Packard. And those those specialists know that field particularly well. And then within the post-war European, naturally, I gravitate to the things that I like. And I like British cars. And I like German cars. And I like... Uh, well, you've got a friend here with the British people. cars. Jake is... Oh, yeah. Jake, Jake I got a the soft best. spot for British cars. And, of course, uh, German cars. I do, too. It, of all the guys, the special specialists that you work for, what's the the most niche one of all the guys <laughs> like that are there? Like this guy only sells cords or something like that. <laughs> like what's the what's the big one? We have a gentleman, one of our European colleagues, and he is probably the world's premier expert on Citroens and Peugeots. Ah, and the uh, outside of the fact that I am in love with DeLoreans and I know a great deal about them, that's not terribly useful information <laughs> in the world of world-class automotives. So how many of these different specialist uh, colleagues are there with RM Sotheby's? There, great question. There are 24 of us throughout the world. The About half of us are here in North America and Canada, and the other half are based throughout Europe. Are you jealous of the ones that have a British accent that they can just sound more cultured just by the way that they talk? Do they, are they able to get more done? <laughs> Where do you draw the line between jealousy and romantic <laughs> lust? Or your, so, I mean, 
I think they go hand in hand more often than that. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're classy cats. They dress well. They their that their accents are just so delicious to listen to, and it doesn't hurt at all that they're just wonderful, wonderful fellows. Well, their pocket squares aren't anywhere near as sorted as yours, so that's at least you've got that uh, going for you. <laughs> they, uh, I got to work hard to keep up with a couple of them uh, in particular. Yeah. So. Before we get into kind of the logistics of the auctions and buying and selling, which is something I'm very curious about, I want to try and um, find out a little bit more about you and, you know, ground the episode a little bit. Um, A lot of us that are men are into cars are all kind of shadows of our fathers a little bit. There's always a little bit of our dads in us somewhere. Um, Tell us about yours. We don't have far to go then, Chris. Uh, Three people probably had the biggest impact on me becoming a petrol head, and that was my father. And my brother and a dear friend of mine, where I had my first real job as a mechanic, and I use that term loosely, I was a terrible mechanic. <laughs> but ultimately, it was my dad who really, you're right, Chris, that planted the seed in me and in so many of my clients and the people I work with and my friends, frankly, they had a father. In my case, I grew up, uh, we had a at, at any one point in time, a fleet of British cars, right, Jake? So that meant that most so of So what did you have? Worked. I'm going to pause and, right there. What did this fleet consist uh, of? Uh, MGs, Jaguars, lots of MGs. We had Austin Healy's. We had Triumphs. There was an Alfa Romeo in there every so once in a while. But it was pretty consistently... Unreliable. unreliable British. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, yeah. You know, anytime I, you have the Lucas Electronics in there, you're. Uh, I'm just oh, gonna yeah. say that maybe you weren't a bad mechanic after all. Maybe it was just the <laughs> <laughs> the cars themselves. Well, you know, even I remember as a kid, I wanted a Schwinn, and I got a Raleigh, and that was back when they were still made in England. But that's a long time ago. I remember my bri- brother always wanted a Suzuki, and of course, he got a, a, a Triumph. So these are the things that, you know, we just, the British goods were ever the best in my family. And my brother, who became a Corvette guy, ironically, maybe he was rebelling, uh, rebelling. And he did some, he went on some rides in that Corvette. He was much older than brother than me. He would stuff me in the back behind the seats in that 64 Stingray with the top down and there are moments now at this stage of my life, now over 50, I still think about often. And then I had to go between high school and university. My father sent my brother and I to a trade school. He just felt that every man should have a skill, whether or not we use it, he should have the ability to use his hands. My brother went and apprenticed as a carpenter. Today, he's still in the construction business. And I went and spent a year at a trade school learning to be a mechanic. And then I went to work for a gentleman. This was probably the third leg of the stool that ultimately impacted who I am with cars. And that was a fellow by the name of Jim Mattern in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. And I worked there. He quickly realized I was a pretty uh, less than stellar mechanic. So he put me up front where I would talk to the customers and that worked out really well and he is to this day a great friend uh, as is my brother and those are really the people that probably had the biggest impact right like you chris and jake a lot of people continue to nurture that passion but it was those three in particular that landed the scene so you did a you did some racing over the years yeah and and some karting back in the day um 
I talk, uh, so tell me about your first karting transporter that you used to get your go-kart to the track. Okay, so I can see I get to say anything I want about Ray Schaefer tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally the case. <laughs> so, you know, you, we, uh, you've heard the expression, the phrase Peter Egan once wrote, an addiction to racing is something that makes heroin look like a taste for something salty. And <laughs> as a result, you find case. And at the time I had a 1988 Pontiac Le Mans. Now let's, let, or excuse me, uh, uh, 98. Uh, I don't even remember what years, but this was back when the Pontiac Le Mans was a Daewoo was a huh. Korean four-door subcompact, not the Pontiac Le Mans we all dream of. <laughs> and if you put the rear seats down, you open up the boot, and you lower the steering, take off all four wheels, remove the side pods, put your toolbox and your cart stand and all of your equipment in the passenger seat, you can stuff your entire go-kart team equipment, engine, and everything <laughs> in fact in the back of a subcompact Pontiac Le Mans. Shut the boot lid and drive to the racetrack. And one year, the club that we raced with enjoyed the process of watching me arrive in this <laughs> rinky-dink little car and take my entire uh, paddock out of the back that I got an award for most intuitive transportation or something. <laughs> well, there you go. So, so you basically had to pull the cart out and assemble it on the spot every time you wanted to, <laughs> wanted to use it. That's that's so. Who's the faster at carting, you or Ray? I just have to ask. Oh, no, I now here's something I can say with Ray Schaefer, who is and you and I've had this conversation outside of here. The classiest guy in the car related world, and he has been that way since he was 19 when I first met him. But not known to many, but definitely known to me and others with whom he's raised. He is quite the wheelman, fellas. And I mean that. That cat is fast <laughs> in anything that he gets behind the wheel of. And almost from the beginning, he was really quite quick in a go-kart. Uh, at first, he didn't know what he – well, he probably still doesn't really know what he's doing mechanically. See, I can say that. And But when you turn the engine on and he figures out which one is the brake and which one is the <laughs> throttle, he uh, he's really quite quick. He really is. He was always fast. So you did some actual racing too, right? Yeah, I did. We Ray and I, ironically enough, sort of followed a similar timeline and we worked our way up. I did a Skip Barber racing school back in 1991. I saved up all my money working like three jobs while I was at university. And I went and did that. And then that was a stepping stone to some club racing. Back in the day when uh, people didn't build houses 100 yards off of a racetrack, you could do 12 hours and 24-hour races at places like what we used to call Moroso, now Palm Beach International, uh, Summit Point. Yeah, and I was doing those 12 and 24-hour races because it was a, you know, it was a great value. You got a lot of seat time for the money. In a Porsche 944, that was a lot of fun. And I did one, I think, in a 
Neon. You guys uh, remember anything about those? Oh yeah. And then eventually, yeah. No, you you do. You had a neon. You no, I did not have one, but I knew know they were big in SCCA. Well, my my wife had a, a Dodge Neon ACR. There when, you go. When I met her. Yeah. Oh wow! It was lime green, and then she got T-boned a block away from her house, and that was the end of that you thing. Know, I wish she still had it. <laughs> Mark my word; those are going to be some of the best valued vintage race cars, probably uh, in the years to come. But I remember going to SCCA races, and uh, the Spec Miata classes would today be envious of how many of those ACRs were lined up to take off for. Mm-hmm some club racing. It was great stuff. So I did, uh, did some in there. And then eventually I was able to work my way up to back then it was called grand am cup for over the course of the years. It's evolved. It was Firehawk, and then it was Motorola cup and it was grand am cup and Conti. Now the Michelin cup. And I did that in an Audi a four. So yeah, I did. I had, uh, I had a great time. It is an extremely expensive habit, but it is, <laughs> incredibly addictive one so you ended up going into finance but you know almost three decades later you basically uh did a 180 degree turn and took what i must think is a big risk changing from something stable like that to what you're doing today what did that why did you decide to make that change i read too many stories about uh these incredible people that got to a point in their life where they realized i'm Jake, you might be able to relate. Well, you're still such a young fellow, but in the <laughs> corporate world, you you do reach a point where listen, I, I loved what I was doing. I loved the people I was doing it with, but I've come to that point where I realize I've done all I'm really going to do. And in full disclosure, it was my own business. And I've had that for 25 years and I'm approaching 50. And that seemed like an interesting time to yeah, you're right. Jump off the ship, jump off the edge, so to speak. I think some people describe it that way. So I did have some... Go ahead. I was going to say, Ramsey, yeah, that does kind of resonate with me. And I would love to be able to just jump ship, as you said, on my career, do a 180-degree turn, and work for RM Sotheby's. But I imagine there's a little more to it. So how do you well, become a guy who likes cars and knows cars to being a specialist for Sotheby's? You're going you're gonna to love this answer. Go racing. Okay. So what I mean by that is those uh, race tales that I was telling you about, there was one particular gentleman and his brother, uh, the gentleman was Kent, his brother was Bill, that I had raced with. And not a lot, but a few times. And as you guys know, that club, that affinity of being around fellow petrol heads, it's a pretty special group of people and generally you remain friends forever even if you don't see each other for 15 years well i'm first and foremost a petrol head like you and all of your listeners and i went to an auction an arms out of these auction and i walked up and there's bill a fellow racer from 15 20 years ago he had spent his career in the automotive industry and at that particular time, he was in a leadership role in RM Sotheby's. We got caught up like old times. And over the course of the next few months, he met me a few times, a few places. One thing led to another. 
we met at the 24 hours of Daytona, had a real long breakfast and look, over the course of the next 90 days, he made an offer. I sold my business. I accepted. And here I am three years later with art and something. Did it have any, did it have anything to do with getting close to 50 and with any kind of looking back and being like, I could have just done this to begin with, or was it just like a, a fresh start that you just wanted to take? Okay, so I have to be a little careful how I answer that. And I want both of you to be conscientious of this. Do what you do and whatever it is you do. And you've heard this cliche, whether it's sweep the floor, paint the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, do it with gusto, do it with enthusiasm. And I had 25 phenomenal years. Was it a matter of becoming almost 50? Probably not so much as there was something magical about the number 25. I don't know. Maybe it just seemed like a nice number to say, okay, that's enough. And it was time. And the right people at the right place at the right time came into my life. I was always around cars, fellas. I was always involved with them. And I did have 25 years of sales experience. It was all business to business. And it just worked out. It really did. Is it everything that you had hoped and dreamed it would be? No, fellas. It's actually that times 52. It is really, really an incredible thing. But it has to do... Not so much with the cars. Don't get me wrong. The fact that today, even, I got in my 1969 Volvo 122 and I was able to drive it about 30, 40 miles away because I got a referral from a client who's a little farther away to a car collector who's 20 miles away. And it's really nice when you get a call and you can just get in your car and drive to that client. (laughs) For sure. And it was a a Series 2 Land Rover, and maybe it wasn't anywhere near Concorde quality thing. And it was great to see that uh, Land Rover. This particular one was built in South Africa, really special. But the really neat thing, fellas, was the person, the caretaker of that automobile. And I use that expression, uh, and I mean it in all genuineness. These are vehicles. You think about this. That Land Rover was built in the 60s. The Volvo I drive, the Porsche that you're sharing with us, your travails on social media, Chris, these are vehicles that had people in its life writing chapters in that car's book before it ever came into yours. And Chris, do you ever stop to think about that, assuming there's going to be great caretakers for that car in the future, Chris, you and I could have left this earth and become dust. And 50 years later, that car will be writing more chapters in somebody else's life. And it's those people that I get the opportunity to come into contact with, like Ray, like yourselves, that make the world I walk around in now. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And then the people I work with, they're just, it's incredible. It really is. So when you... When you talk about the people and how incredible it is and, and the cars that you see and the people that you meet, when you when you talk about the value of a car, when someone's going to buy a car, does anybody take that into account? Is it – I mean, I kind of know the answer to this question. But when you look at a car that's for sale, it's more about where it's been and what it's done than what it is. 
right? Well, I, I, yes, and may I extend that comment by saying, please make sure you consider all the things that the car will be for you. It, it's been something for somebody, but let's be frank here, fellas. If there are two completely identical Ferrari Daytona coupes crossing the auction block or for sale in any particular place, and I mean apples to apples, and in one of them, the owner, the consigner, the seller happened to have gone out on his first date in the car, and the other one was just a car they owned. Does it really make any difference to you when it comes time to purchase it? Yeah, it shouldn't. But what are those cars going to mean to you? That sounds a little crass when I say it, but I I think it's important that when you look at a car, you look at it for how does it make you feel? And fellas, I'm talking about down in your loins, man. How does it make you feel? And and what do you what do you dream about with that car? And what do you see yourself doing with that automobile? I personally, this is by no means an Arnold Sotheby's thing, but all of my colleagues would probably say they have the same four or five rules. But I have five rules of car collecting, and at first they were suggestions, and experience has taught me, no, these are rules. And the fifth one is the best kind of car to buy as an investment is the one you want. Because there are odds the value of the car may go up, may go down, may stay the same. No matter what, you better really like it. And that's the car that you're going to derive the greatest return on your investment from. Again, boy, I sound like some cliche-ridden storybook, but it's what cars do for me. I hope it, they do the same for you and your listeners. So do you think that a lot of people buy cars for the wrong reasons? And if this rule exists, <laughs> it must mean because people are doing it wrong. No, no. I, I, I tell you what, I, I think we're all car collectors, petrol heads that have the resources to get a car that they want. Obviously, these are not cars you need. In the end, their emotions overrule their wallet. And in the case of get the car you want, that's actually probably a pretty good thing because it doesn't always make sense what you pay for a car when you look at what it is worth in the market or what some people believe it could be worth in the future. And really, that's an enormous misnomer. That's frankly just a fallacy. Nobody has a crystal ball, and I enjoy it when sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, these cars are clearly going to go up in value. Really? Uh, if you happen to have that suit-saying friend that can predict the future, please, I've got a couple questions about some <laughs> other mix and models. Well, Ramsey, well, you just told us that those neon ACRs were going to be the hot ticket in vintage racing. Yeah, okay. Listen, <laughs> when it comes to collectible values, race cars, uh, in this case, I see them as a very valuable tool, as a great resource. I got Whether you. or not they're ever going to go up in value, that is, uh, heaven help us, if neons go up in value, <laughs> wouldn't that be the day? It would be the day. So tell us a little bit yeah. about, so I've, I've kind of broken this down into three subjects, buying, yeah. selling, and basically the arms to the B side of it, the logistics, what it takes to make it all happen. I want to start out with selling. 
Um, so there are yeah. lot, there's lots of places to sell a car that aren't auctions, and some are online auctions. I mean, you've got Bring a Trailer, eBay for auctions, and there's more. But then you've got Craigslist, Facebook, online websites, what Auto Trader, Cars.com, whatever. Why bring a car to someone like RM instead of taking one of these other routes? What's what is what is it that you guys offer to somebody that they can't get anywhere else? Okay, that is a really good question. You guys are fabulous, fabulous hosts. So the the difference is, ironically enough, boy, I have to, I have to really. <laughs> make sure I say the right things, right? But I do want to say <laughs> what I what I believe in my heart and in my mind. The auction day is a really special thing. And if, if you ever had the opportunity to go to a world-class auction, I would suggest you go to an RM Sotheby's event, but do it. And it's high drama. It's fantastic. It is just a thrilling thing. The difference between what happens at our auction and our and Sotheby's event and other places is everything and all the work that goes into the months, the weeks, and the days leading up to that particular auction. If, if you were to ask me what's one of the things that has surprised you the most, there are a couple of them when I started in this industry. But the one that I can say is probably on the leading edge is the amount of work that Mr. Rob, the RM, Rob Myers, and our management team, our leaders, our very best and brightest specialists, the amount of work that goes in before the auction today ever arrives. We are working feverishly, gents. When that catalog closes, we study these cars. We know these cars. We understand these cars. And then we know and understand our clients. So we closed our catalog for Arizona. And we are coming up to the middle of January where we will have that world-class event. And the moment that catalog went closed, I looked at the list and I thought, okay, I've got client X. He's been looking for a stunning E-type coupe. I've got client Y. He's been looking for Carrera GT that wasn't silver. I've got this client. I've got that client. I have this gentleman who's not really sure maybe what he wants. Or this gal who's hoping to maybe go this direction or fill this spot in her collection. And, man, it is all hands on deck. That's the human side of the the, what makes RM Sotheby so special is we're working really hard as individual specialists to get those vehicles sold for the greatest possible return on that caretaker's investment. And then there's also the global marketing. I mean, we are part of Sotheby's. Look, fellas, when we hit send in our email, it goes to the most powerful, the most important, the most robust car collectors on every continent in the world, gentlemen. And that's really sort of what makes the RM Sotheby's experience just a little bit better. I might be a little biased, but that's what <laughs> I feel. Well, I don't want, I just, my question, I guess, is 
I think Bring a Trailer has done things to the car market. And <laughs> oh, they're, yeah. they're arguably good and they're arguably bad at the same time. You know, arguably bad because all of a sudden a Volkswagen Rabbit is selling for $25,000. Arguably good because a lot of cars that, you know, are on the cheaper side of things are coming out and they're getting seen and bought or whatever. What has something like Bring a Trailer done to, has it affected you guys at all Has in any way? Um, what do you think of that entire phenomenon? Phenomenal. Absolutely. Just, I mean, what a neat thing, right? Make no bones about it. I, um, I while away many a minute looking at what's going on there and what's happening. They got cool stuff. And does it affect us? I don't know that it affects us. Do we recognize what's happening in that genre of auctioning? Well, of course we do. We'd be fools not to. So has Hemming, so has PCAR Market, so has all these other different entities that realize, hey, fellas, let's be real here. I don't know about you. I have, uh, I'm married and I bought gifts for my wife for this Christmas season and I bought every one of them online. So why wouldn't we go in that direction? If you'll take a moment, uh, maybe your listeners and hop on the RM Sotheby's website sometimes. Fellas, we just had a seven-car collection, all auctioned online. It was a seven-day auction. It's a Ford GT, Austin Healey. We had a 56, I think I'm getting this right, $1,000 Mini Moke. We did a Nissan Figaro a few <laughs> weeks ago, and I think it sold for almost $60,000. Jesus. Or, or, uh, it was over fifty, I believe it was. Yeah, I, I have to be careful on that number. It was the Nissan Figaro that was used in one of the episodes of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Okay. Uh, so we're there. We, you might say we have arrived in that environment as well. Of course, we're going to add our special, unique RM Sotheby's way, sure. ways of doing things. We're going to vet the cars. We have to inspect the cars. It'll be a little bit different. So that kind of uh, brings me to my, my next question is, you know, you guys aren't just selling multi-million dollar cars. Because when a lot of people think of, you know, a car going to auction, they think of an XJ220 or a Ferrari 250 or, you know, who knows, a, a, a Gullwing Mercedes and all these cars that are just absolutely priceless. But um, you sell a lot of the, the I wouldn't say regular stuff, but there's, you know, much cheaper cars. But what is the main criteria that has to be met by every car regardless of value that uh, that you look at when you want to take something on? If someone brings you a car, what are you looking at? Great question. And it's probably the same thing or along the same lines that every petrol head is looking for in a car, something that is rare and exceptional. Now, do not confuse, and this is a urban legend, I'm not quite sure the term, that I want to dispel. Yes. When you look at Arizona, when you look at Amelia, Pebble Beach, our average transaction across those venues, fellas, it's probably half a million bucks. But along those same lines, there are cars in those auctions that are selling for $50,000, maybe $75,000. And then you have the venues that we conduct our auctions that are RM auctions. We sort of had two streams, if you can let me use that 
free. There's the RM Sotheby's auctions, Arizona, Amelia, Pebble Beach. And then we have our RM auctions, same people, same company, same marketing. And that is where we focus on automobiles that are still rare, that are still exceptional, but they might be $25,000. The the simple reality is, fellas, not every good Ferrari is a quarter of a million dollars. Not every good Porsche, not every good Mercedes-Benz, and for that matter, not every good Camaro or Ford Mustang is a world record. There are fabulous, I had a conversation just, a day or so ago with a, a fella sort of midlife. And it's not a crisis. It's an opportunity where he now wants to begin to buy collector cars, but more importantly, drive them. And he was talking to me about, guess what, uh, Jake, old British cars that have enormous character and terrible go. reliability. Yeah. And I said, look, don't, don't do this. <laughs> don't do this to your poor wife that you're going to take with you on this thousand mile rally. Cause that's what he wants to do. And he says, so what should I get? I said, I have just the thing for you. Come down to the RM auction at Palm Beach International Raceway at the end of March, and we will probably have three or four fabulous 230 or 280 SLs. Some of them will even have air conditioning. They'll have great bodies, great interiors, hard pagoda tops, great soft tops. You and your wife can get in them. You'll spend 50000 maybe 30000 maybe 40000 depending on the car, and you will drive it for 1,000 miles. And while you're enjoying every moment of the rally, driving past all the Austin Healy's, all the MGA's, <laughs> broken down along the side of the road with a few Italian cars as well, you'll have a great time, and it's a great sort of, as I like to say, gateway drug into the car collection. Let me just ask you a question, and everybody that listens to the podcast knows this. I really like old Mercedes stuff, but Jake (laughs) always calls them my grandpa car. So can you clarify to Jake that Mercedes are not grandpa cars? Hey, perception, first of all, is in the eye of the beholder. So you can say whatever you want. I just say there's a perception and connotation to me. Ramsey is clearly an authority on this, and he's going to tell you right now how you're wrong. Go ahead. Jake, you, you, you like British cars. How are you qualified to be an authority on anything about a German car if you're a British car fan? About the, the character that a, I mean, a great, you know, I bought a car at our Auburn Fall auction. It was a 190 four-door sedan, just a standard old run-of-the-mill Mercedes-Benz. It was kitted out to do some rally stuff. It was just a fantastic car. And look, I, I could go to gas stations. I could go to car shows. And 10-year-old kids and 70-year-old guys were all the same way. Oh, what a cool car. Yes, of course, they admire the 911s and the Ferraris and the great Mustangs. But listen, I got to tell you, I, I don't know. You spend two or 300 miles, Jake, behind the wheel of a I mean, a 190SL or even just a 190 sedan, a 230. How about a 1992 Mercedes 190E with 231,000 miles? (laughs) He's talking about a car that's near and dear to his heart. (laughs) Yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. I don't know. I I will own. I'm like everybody else. I have the list of cars that I want to come through my collection. I have another rule. The first rule of car collecting is you have to have a place to keep it. 
So I only have one spot in the garage left. So I only have one car at a time. Fortunately, I know a guy in the auction business, so I just rotate <laughs> uh, every every year. And I want one of those 190s to come through my collection. Jake, Jake, look at them. They're, they're, they're bloody well little German touring cars for the street. How can you not say that that car has masculinity and, and, and macho about it? Those things are fantastic, fantastic cars. I think they're great. Uh, there's some things I have to stand my ground on, and I just don't. I can't right. get behind them. All right, well, let's. I, there's no convincing. It. Let's move on. So, um, <laughs> when you're when a guy brings you a car, what is the what is the process? So you say, okay, we like this car. We'd like to do it. Is there like a vetting process? What do you guys have to do to make sure the car is legit? Because um, you know you see stories all the time, like this nine million window bus was not real. And we found out because there was some <laughs> random little weld thing that wasn't quite in the right spot or Jerry Seinfeld had a car that wasn't real. And that kind of, st- this stuff happens, but yeah. what do you guys try to do to, to make sure it doesn't happen and who bears the responsibility <laughs> when something goes wrong? So, uh, okay. Two part question. And here's probably uh, the thing I learned number two that I was shocked how much work and effort goes into it. And that is that we do our homework and we make every possible attempt in advance to validate, to substantiate what the consigner of the car states that it is. Trust, but verify. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that is it. And I use that expression all the time. I really do. When a, a consigner says to me, well, you know, it's. I've told you it's matching. Why are you, what do you have to come look at it for? Why do you need to see this, that, or the other number? And I'll just say, look, it's a question of trust, but verify. And then, of course, the easiest thing to say is just put the shoe on the other foot for a moment, sir mm-hmm. or ma'am. If it were you bidding, do you think for just a moment you might ask me? Did you verify or did you substantiate? And we make every effort to do that. But fellas, look, there are some cars that demand more than others. Corvettes are an example. Matching numbers with Porsches was the number restamped. And, you know, we take pictures. So this comes back to the conversation about my colleagues. Holy Moses, fellas, I've just got, I have a bank of knowledge that that is a phone call away or an email away. And I can send a picture of an engine number and I can say, hey, is this right? Was that? Did that seven have a serif on it or was that not the way it should have been? And sometimes, in fact, things that will give a car away is how pretty something is. Because Mm. let's call it like it is in the 50s and the 60s. Sometimes if a manufacturer was stamping a one on a VIN plate or an engine number, you know, Aldo just grabbed the closest straight edge screwdriver and whacked away. And, And when you... You have to know this. You have to have this knowledge. And where I'm weak in so many areas, I have so many amazing colleagues that can help me. There is a certain element, though, I will say, of as you get into more contemporary cars, they're great resources today. Once you have a VIN number, you can verify with certain manufacturers. You can verify with groups like the Rolls-Royce Owners Club. If you have a Bentley, there, there are a couple experts, one in particular, that just there's an amazing amount of information. There are people who have dedicated their lives to just becoming 
an unprecedented expert in one particular market. Sometimes within that particular market, it's one particular model. And we use these resources as often as we can. Okay, let's say we get it wrong. Hold on. Before, you, before you get there, what is, what is it like to tell somebody that their car isn't real? Have you had to do that before? Just sorry, oh, sir. Man. This just the numbers don't match. I mean, it must just be the worst conversation in the world. I have had the good fortune of generally not having to do that often, but on the, well, I'm trying to think, the one or two occasions. <sighs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> it, it, uh, I, I don't re- Maybe it's one of those things I've blocked out, uh, but I, I did it. Actually, I come to think of it, I did it with a Porsche on an engine. And, you know, I think at first, the particular gentleman, he was an older gentleman. At first, he was mad at me, and then he was mad at the person from whom he had sourced the car. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, recognizing, you know, where where does the buck stop, so to speak? He, he made He went through that process in his head. And ultimately, he was just disappointed. Right. So let's say that he still doesn't have a great car, but it just wasn't what he thought. So -hmm. something let's say something slips through. What who bears responsibility for that? Is it the owner or do you have to find out if the owner knew and then go from there? How does that work? You know, I, I, I can't tell you that there is we open up a book and on page seven, it, you know, paragraph three, subparagraph A. If owner, in fact, does know, then this happens. <laughs> Flog we him 17 times behind the shed. <laughs> yeah. We, look, we're, we're in the business to sell cars. And if we publish something or proclaim something to be what it's not, we have to ultimately – ultimately, where does the responsibility lie? Can I, can I say that's – as the situation dictates, but I can, I can definitely say this in every situation, we make every effort to make the situation as right as we possibly can. It is our responsibility to take the steps to rectify it. What that solution looks like depends. Right. Sometimes, fellas, it really is a genuinely honest mistake. Sometimes. Well, we are humans after all. <laughs> we, we are. And, and you know, fellas, the, you talk about bring a trailer and, and how it has exposed values. The internet, the fact that every single bidder in our auction house, while the auction is happening, can turn on their iPhone and with two opposable thumbs can learn a great deal about the car that's about to roll up on that auction block, its value history, its ownership history. There's so much information that is so easily accessible that, frankly, the it's harder and harder to be a bad guy than it has probably ever been before. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. It's uh, So let's say that the car is verified and you're like, okay, this thing's for real. What is the – how much more difficult is the process? Is it more like, all right – Load it. We got to take set a photographer like me over, take the pictures, throw the thing on the trailer, and send it over to us, and then sign this fax. Is that basically it? Outside of maybe using the expression "throw the thing on the trailer," <laughs> yeah, that's probably uh, that's that is uh, loosely speaking a fairly <laughs> a fairly reasonable description of the steps. 
we've left out the critical part in there where, you know, again, this comes back to what is it about RM Sotheby's that makes us so different? One of the things that Mr. Rob believes in at RM, Rob Myers again, is control. And by that, I mean he wants to control every element of the process because that's the way you can ultimately ensure quality. Look, there's 24 of us throughout the world. No other auction house comes close to the number of full-time specialists. Then you get into the whole marketing, and then you get into the research team, and the catalog team, and the editors, and the young gals and guys that wake up every day, show up at our offices throughout North America and London, and literally swim in books, and knowledge, and experiences and they research these cars and they write these catalog descriptions and they validate them with third-party experts. There's a lot of that that goes into it in between meeting you and throwing it on the trail. (laughs) So so the car is for sale. Some guy has done all that stuff. He's got the car for sale. On the other side is the buyer. So what does it take to get in the crowd with the number on the stick? What does it take? The number on the stick. Right? That's what I (laughs) say. You know what I mean? I'm using that. Yeah. Chris, when you come to our auction, I'm going to say, give this man. The uh, number on the stick. Give the man a number on a stick and let him do his thing. A bidding paddle. Isn't that the correct term? No, we're going with number on it. Okay, okay. okay. I, have, I have now revolutionized. Uh, I eagerly await my. Uh, I eagerly await my my check. <laughs> you kids nowadays, I tell you what, you're just. Uh, but it, you, that's another such an enormous myth that I want to dispel, fellas. To be able to bid at one of our auctions, look. This is what we do. If we, if the process, if, if we were to have made that process difficult, uh, time-consuming, or riddled with obstacles, it would be pretty tough to be a world-class auction house, wouldn't it? So we, we make the process as straightforward as we can. And I have to tell you, fellas, a lot of it goes on, maybe I shouldn't say this, but a lot of it just goes on reputation. Mm-hmm. Chris, if, if, you called me and you said, Ramsey, um, I'd have to worry about Jake because he likes British cars. So if you <laughs> called me and you said, Ramsey, I have a good friend and he is a legit player. He really has a passion for Packards. He sees something in your auction. Can you get him set up? Look, Chris, you know, if I can't trust you, I might as well just never get out of bed in the morning. Well, I thought and, I, I thought you were going along the lines of Chris. If you ever came, I'd give you a, a number on a stick, and I'd be like, "Boy, that would be a huge mistake." <laughs> <laughs> number on the stick or a boot to the I'm talking about your friend. Yeah, you if, you, if you told me this particular guy or gal, and sure. that they were going to be able to cover the check, no, I just don't send them a number on a. <laughs> I will actually <laughs> ask them just to fill out a simple form. Sure. And by simple, I mean super simple. And we'll do a little bit of homework. And my client liaison, Miss Olivia, will. I mean, it's it gets done. It just it gets done. We want to make this process easy. Have we been fooled? We have, uh, but not very often. The whole world is watching. When you're in that room and you raise that 
yeah. check with a number. Yeah, <laughs> You'd have uh, to have some pretty big balls to have $0 yeah. in your checking account and raise that. Yeah. That thing you'd have to, yeah. that would take some serious, serious uh, cojones. Un, unlike on the internet there, you don't get to use an alias. You're there. Exactly. There's a few thousand people all looking at you along with, Oh, I don't know our cameras, our microphones. <laughs> and yeah. you know, we have your name and number. So yeah, it's generally a pretty, a fairly self police system. If I can say that. So let's say I'm, I'm in, what advice do you have for the rest of the process? Cause the rest of the process can be kind of fluid, right? Everybody can kind of do different things. Is there like a place that I could go see the car that I want to bid on? Can you drive it? Do they run? I mean, how do I, collect information to make a good bidding decision man you you walk into this one because that is in fact you just asked about rules two through four right we got one which is you have to have a place to put it because if you don't have a place to keep the car or your wife's minivan has to be kept outside in the rain so you can have your (laughs) 190 that's not going to go over well. So you have that to is exactly what Chris did for the record. <laughs> that is 100% what happened at Chris's house. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> you broke rule number one. Right? You didn't even get the first hey, one right. I've got somewhere to put my cars. She just doesn't have anywhere to put hers. <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. Well, the good news is everybody breaks rule number. If you don't break rule number one, you can hardly call yourself a centralist. So, you get to rule number two. Now we're in the buying, the acquisition phase. And I don't care whether this is an auction or any other place, fellas. Rule number two is there will always be another one. Hmm. What I mean by that is everybody just take a deep breath, just calm down. When that car comes up on stage or comes up online or is in the driveway that you're now visiting and that person two states away, just step back for a moment. There will always be another one. Is there that rare and unique one of one or one of two situation? Yeah. But frankly, Chris, you and I aren't playing in that field. So no, probably not. Do you know how many times I've broken that rule? I, Oh my God, (laughs) I've been there. I've been like, Oh, I'm already here. So it cost me $800 in a airfare to get out here on the next day. I guess I'm already $800 in. So I just need to buy this thing. Even though the struts are blown and the tires are bald and everything else. This is why as an auction house, you want Chris to have that number on the stick because he (laughs) will swing that thing around. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The, uh, so you you just and you have to just take a breath and you have to say there 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 will always be another one. Now, ironically enough, that rule works the same way when you're selling a vehicle. The 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 single phrase I probably hear from a consigner more than any other that I cringe just a bit is and Ramsey. You'll, you won't find another one just like it. The reality is in a 50 mile radius of where that petrol head has lived his or her life. And I know Chris, you in particular fall far outside of that uh, parameter <laughs> because you've uh, gone a lot farther than 50 miles fully for you. But for most petrol heads, the world in which they operate is a fairly small one. When you think about what I do, which I drive, uh, let's see, this past year I drove 51,000 miles. 
I'm uh, medallion, big time medallion status with Delta. I've been all over the, well, not all over the world, but certainly all over North America. I do have uh, one or two clients in Europe. Think about what I see when someone says, and there's not another E-type like this. Well, maybe in Florida, but have you been to the Jaguar Concord in Chicago? Have you been to the Jaguar show in L.A.? Have you been to the Jaguar convention in Dallas or uh, Norwalk, Connecticut? Or have you been up to Maine? There are actually a lot of them just like that. doesn't mean that you don't have a special car, but that rule of there's always another one applies both coming and going. So just calm down and do your homework. So that goes right into rule number three, which is eyes on the prize. What I mean by that, fellas, is if you're at an auction or you're buying online or you've gone to see that vehicle, for heaven's sakes, fellas, if it's at all possible, don't commit to that transaction until somebody has taken a look at the vehicle. I don't have a problem with bring a trailer at all. I think it's a great opportunity. We're doing on-site, or excuse me, online sales. But again, the big difference is we vetted the vehicles to some degree. So, you know, if, if I were to buy a car in that type of situation and I couldn't go there, Chris, I'd call you or I'd call Ray or I would call one of my friends who knows somebody who knows somebody that lives in Denver. And I would say, hey, I understand you're a petrolhead. I am, too. In the big scheme of karma, I'm always going to owe you one. Could you take a moment next Saturday and drive over to see this guy's? Uh, MGTF fifteen hundred, and just tell me what you think of it. One of the, so, I think I get a lot of people messaging me on Instagram that are like, "Hey man, I found this car. Do you think it's a good car?" And I go, "I can't see it. There's no way for me to know if it's a good car or not. I can say look for rust here or whatever, but there's nothing that even comes close to someone knowing what they're doing, laying eyes on the car. It's really, really important." then you're a good friend and someone that your petrolhead pal should rely on because that should be the first answer every time. You know, that's a little bit different than if they asked you, is it a cool car? Well, yeah, I mean, a 93 Acura NSX, they were all cool cars. Right. Whether or not that's a good example <laughs> of an Acura, a 93 Acura NSX, that's a different category. So just eyes on the prize. Somebody touch it, feel it, smell it. Fire it up, and you can do that at an RM Sotheby's auction. So when we have an auction, for example, coming up in Arizona, the auction is Thursday and Friday, but we'll be on the grounds at the Biltmore. I get in Sunday afternoon. I have dinner that night with a client. By Monday morning, I'll be over, under, on top, in, behind, in front of every automobile that my clients are interested in. I create a list. And I'm working with these clients in advance and they'll ask me, well, what do you think of that Jaguar? Or what do you think of this Corvette? And I'm like, well, I think it looks good. My colleague described it as such, but wait till I get on the ground and then I will take it for a test drive and I will fire it up and I will listen to it and I will rev it and I will put it through its gears. And if you come to our auction in advance, you can't show up the morning of and say, let's go for a test drive. But, even you, Chris, if you called me and let me know that you were coming in advance, by golly, you and I would go out for a test drive. Now, we can't test drive all the cars, and we're not going out in the race cars, Chris, but we can go out. <laughs> and some of the really cool things that you or your clients, maybe you come because one of your friends has said, hey, Chris, if you're going to be in Arizona for Car Week, 
would you go check out this form that RM Sotheby's has? Right. Buddy, I will put that card through its paces for you and for that interested bidder. Well, I think that's and that's then, really important because it's without being able to see it, touch it, feel it, hear it, drive it, it's you might as well just be pulling up a, a newspaper ad and buying it sight unseen because <laughs> it's it's almost impossible to do anything with it that way. Well, and, you know, Cavi M. Tour, uh, which is something I should tell myself because, look, I've done it, okay, and I <laughs> regretted it, which is why I came up with rule number three. So, and then rule number four, this one, uh, this is the one I'll probably get debated on the most, and the, the most enthusiastic rebuts will come from my Porsche petrol head files, and that is that original wins every time. Now, let me clarify. The rule number four opens with this phrase. There is nothing wrong at all with a great tribute, outlaw, modified, kit car, contraption. In fact, they can be an enormous amount of fun. However, in the long term, if what you hope to do is to be able, and I'm not even talking about investment purposes. Yes, that's probably applies to that as well. But the fact that this particular Porsche is mostly original means I know where to go to get parts. I know what to whom to go to seek advice. I know when this particular part breaks. Well, interestingly enough, that, that same part broke on every other Porsche. You made the comment earlier, Chris. I don't know if the car is a good car or not, but I know to look for rust in this spot. Right. And you know to do that because there's a certain chain. There's a certain criteria that an original automobile presents to its potential caretaker. The, so it's hard when you have I like a hot rod like, or something like that. It's, it's difficult yeah. because you don't know it's who built it. Why mm -hmm. did they built it? Why is this paint color different? Is it because it was in an accident? There's so many more unknowns when you come across a car that's been screwed with than a car that. Why doesn't you, my door fit? Yes, <laughs> yes, Jake. Why doesn't your door fit? But my, I mean, my car is obviously a hot rod. My car, <laughs> my car is not original in any way, shape, or form. But so it would be very difficult for me to explain to someone everything that's been done. And if if someone was going to buy my car and didn't know anything about me or anything I'd done on the car. They it would be very difficult to say, yeah, this is okay, this is fine. Where if it's a car that's you know a 1967 or whatever 911, and it's, yeah, this car is all original. It's been it was maintained at the dealer, and then some little old lady parked it in her garage and never drove it again. You could be like, well, you know, it's much easier to the expectations are much easier to to take a look at. Yeah, and it gives in the world of value. You have what you what we would call comp. So if you had a strictly original. XYZ automobile, and you said, what's it worth? I could say, well, let's take a look. I have 18 apples to apples comparisons over the last 12 months that have all sold between this value and this value. Guess what? Yours is going to sell for. Now, if you have the, the, the Chris, the uh, Chris Superfire Atom Smoker special, you know, I don't, you know, <laughs> there's one of one. I don't know what it's worth. So don't ask me. So now that I've uh, found the car, I've heard it run. Uh, Ramsey took me for a drive on it, and we took it up to Redline twenty five times. What? <laughs> and I'm. What's next? I've decided I want that car, and I do. I just go show up at the auction with my number on a stick and go. All right, that's the one I want. Or what's the rest of the process like from start to finish? Don't drink too much. Okay, stay sober and get a good night's rest. Be ready. 
because it happens right then and there. And you, you have to make sure you have, make sure you have some ceilings, make sure you know what your budget is and be ready when the auctioneer, especially with a no reserve automobile, which in, in, in inevitably will have more activity on the car. You have to know, I, I, okay, self, I am willing to go to this number on this car. And what, then you what get percentage of people number. stick to that number? I'm curious about that, too. I mean, that's got to go away pretty quick. Yeah. So I'll tell you this. That the best way I know to explain it is my first experience. This was before I was even in the auction business many, many years ago. Uh, my dear friend, his father decided at that stage of life he wanted to start collecting cars. Okay. So we go to an auction at a million. This is a long time ago. And, right, I know a little bit about cars because I was a mechanic. At least I, you know, knew more about them at the time than he did. He's since become very knowledgeable. And he says to me, okay, here are four cars. Take a look at them. I looked at them. We looked at one particular. It was a it was a 930, a 911 Turbo, slam nuts. And he said, okay, you say that's a good car. I like it. I'm going to bid on it. And here's the deal. And I'm going to sit with him during the auction. And this is an incredibly true story. He looks me in the eye and he says, now, Ramsey, I'm going to bid not one penny more than $60,000. I don't care <laughs> what the, I don't, don't. And if I even think about bidding beyond $60,000, just stop me. He's never had, he's never purchased a car at an auction before in his life. He has the resources. That's not the problem. So we start the bidding. And the car starts at, I don't remember the number. Let's say it starts at 48. This was a long time ago, right, fellas? Sure. And then he, and he's up 50 and 55 and 50. Then he gets to 60. And I'm like, okay, we're there. And he's like, ah, one more. And he goes to 62. And I'm like, well, okay, now. Oh, no, no. I, I, one more. And the next thing I know, we're, <laughs> we're at 69. And then we're at 70. And I'm like, I, I, I'll, let's just call him Fred. I'm like, Fred, stop. You said. And he looked at me with fire in his eyes and said, shut up. I know what I'm doing. And he bought the car for $82,000. Oh. <laughs> I was always so. wondering, is if you, especially for a first timer, if you hooked a cardiogram up to people that are doing live auctions, oh, I bet yeah. their heart rates are through the roof. It's got to be this physical adrenaline, emotional experience that once you do it once, I bet you're going to be doing it again. Yeah. Well, we, we don't call them regulars for nothing. And that's, uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it is an incredible experience, fellas. It's invigorating. Your palms are sweating. I have to tell you, it's even more fun when you're there with a bunch of your pals, buddies, friends, and family, and they get to share in the whole experience. It's sort of like winning and winning big when you get that automobile that you always wanted. And I'll tell you something else that I've learned, unfortunately, the hard way. And it doesn't matter if it's cars or I was bidding on some books one time and I'm like, I'm done. And I stopped and one more bid won. And I, mean, I Within five uh, minutes of the auction being over, I'm like, call the high bidder, call the winner, tell him I'll give him 20% more. <laughs> what am I doing? Right? <laughs> So it, it, it is, it's, there's a reason we are able to do what we do and that people come back again and again and enjoy the experience and enjoy the camaraderie. And, you know, in my little presentation that I do to groups, 
it's sort of a three-part presentation, as I shared with you, Chris. You, you buy, sell, and enjoy. And frankly, 90% of the people in the auction room, Chris, that's what they're doing. They're just enjoying it. Yeah, they may have a number on a stick, but frankly, they're there to just meet old friends, make new friends. Look, I got to tell you, you come to any one of our auctions, whether it's Arizona or Auburn Fall, it's the best bloody car show in town. And, and they're all there, and you can look in them and touch them and feel them. And if you're a registered bidder and show up before, and we'll bloody well take them for a drive. You can't do that at the New York Auto Show, but you can do that at one of our events. So it really is. It's it's thrilling. It's invigorating. And, of course, the good news is that car that he ended up buying for over $80,000, the greatest asset that you can have with any investment, whether it's your stocks and bonds, or quite frankly, great automobiles is time. And today that vehicle is probably comfortably a $200,000, at least $175,000 car. Well, we're going to have to take you up on that offer of coming by. I've I've been to one. Uh, Jake has not. He's never been to Car Week. I want to get him out to Car Week so he can experience Pebble Beach and everything like that. Um, But I think uh, think we're out of time. And But I just want to ask you, where can people find out more about uh, you and what you do at RM Sotheby's. Thanks. Great, great question again. And what a wonderful time this has been. You guys truly are the the thinking car collectors or the thinking petrol heads podcast. You fellows are all pro. So Thanks. obviously, I, I hope everybody can hop on. And if you've never been there, take a moment. It's just fantastic. And that's the RM Sotheby's website. Uh, com. It's hard to say and even harder to spell. R-M-S-O-T-H-E-B-Y-S. Just get the first few letters and Google will get you the rest of the way. <laughs> right. Uh, and once you're there, there's a couple links at the top. There's Explore. You get the drop down on Explore. There's Team. And you'll see me there. I'm the only specialist with a hat on. My employer was so good to let me break the mold and have my picture taken uh, with a chapeau. And then the other place that I spend a lot of time because I've got the greatest life coach uh, anybody could have, and that's my pal, uh, Ray Schaefer, who has taught me all about the power of Instagram, especially when it's (laughs) done properly. And that's where I am. I'm just Ramsey Potts on Instagram. I, uh, I need to do better. But I really do enjoy the connections that it's helped me. It is a uh, it is a great way to connect, and we'll share that with everybody, of course, uh, when the episode comes out. And uh, Ramsey, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. I learned a, a ton, fun. and uh, I'm going to start uh, saving some money so I can get my own number on a stick and come <laughs> hang out with, and come hang out with you. I, I look forward to it, fellas. We've got guest passes. I promise. You know, it's I'm I've often been referred to as a polite drug dealer. Just come on, I'll give you a little taste. <laughs> We'll just get you started. Just a little sugar to see what it's all about. And the next thing you know, you'll be coming to every one of them. You guys are absolute all class, all pro. You guys are what's the difference between, you know, someone who likes cars and someone who is a genuine enthusiast. So keep spreading the message. Keep keeping things interesting. And for heaven's sakes, fellas, work hard. Do it with enthusiasm. You're going places. And I'm honored to be a part of it now. So that I can say someday when you are worldwide, baby, that I was there when. So congratulations to both of you. <laughs> Thank on you all so that you've much. Done and all that you have yet to do. 
Thanks, man. I really, I really appreciate that. I, I don't compliment Wells. I don't know what to say. Um, You're making Chris blush over here. Yeah, I that's, tell you. that's a, that's a rare good. thing. So um, <laughs> well, he's got some good. Uh, his beard game is very strong. So yeah. I wonder what it looks like between beneath all that facial hair. <laughs> it's it's winter time. So if I'll send you a picture, you can see what it looks like. It's uh, my wife always says it's very weird, and don't ever do that again when I shave it off. So all right, man. Thanks cool, a lot. I appreciate good. you coming on, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon. I'm sure we'll hang out soon. Happy motoring, guys. Thanks. You bet. Right, Take care. Bye. bye. Many thanks to to Ramsey for coming on the podcast. That, that was, was awesome. It's such a process that I just don't know anything about. Right. You know, all you see is people waving around the thing, and they <laughs> the, the cars, bidding, the bidding paddle, Chris. The, bidding the number paddle. on a stick. Yes. I, I hope that sticks. That's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, my buddy Chris calls it a, a number on a stick. I've been. What number did you get? Oh, <laughs> wonder if you get to pick your own number. I have no idea. Like you do your race car, you get to pick your own number. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I kind of doubt it. It's it's really cool. So the cars are up and elevated, kind of at your yeah. eye level. Yep. And there's stage. tons of people all over the place. And there's like these murmurings going on and then people talking. And um, and you he, got the bidders on the phone, yeah, too. <laughs> there was uh, Adam Carolla when I interviewed him about when he bought his his uh, 935, which yeah. is on the wall here. He was in he was in bidding competition with what he called was some guy from Saudi Arabia with all the money he needed to buy in his ashtray. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. so you never know who's you know bidding on the phone, which that would be I that would be a tough one to to compete with because you, you don't get to see the emotion on their face or anything. Yeah, it's just some guy goes. Yep. And it's just like, you don't get to look over and see Bob four Where aisles over and you can't give him a dirty look and go sit down, Bob, just with your eyes. You know what I mean? Which is something that, you know, you'd want to have some, you know, emotional altercation with the person to get them to, to put their I'm wallet sure. away. No, so it, it sounds like an awesome time. And thank you, Ramsey, so much for giving us insight into that. Well, if you like this episode, hop on patreon.com slash overcrest and support the show. It's That's only, right. It's only five bucks, which is super cheap. Uh, you can get shirts. If you spend a little bit more, you can get prints. We've Either got way, some. you're going to get exclusive content. That's I have another right. exclusive history story coming up shortly yes. for the next month. Yep. So we've got some of those in the works. Also head over to iTunes or wherever you listen and leave us a review. That's really helpful. Really helps us out. And uh, we will see you guys on Monday. Thanks a lot. Take care.